at some point, I believe some, some point soon, he's going to bring us into a building that he has in mind for us, uh, not because we need a place, but yes, we do, but uh, a place where the work of the kingdom of God can be done more effectively, more broadly, without hindrances, and so that's our expectation. So, Chag Sameach. It's clear the uh, throat, Hebrew is very phlegmy, very guttural. Chag Sameach. Awesome. So, um, our series the last few weeks has been uh, Yeshua in Jewish moccasins. And of course, we all know that he did not wear moccasins, but you understand the point to emphasize the fact that uh, despite what we have seen in medieval uh, pictures of Yeshua looking highly um, Northern European, which uh, God doesn't have anything against folks who are Northern European, it's just that Yeshua didn't come from there. And so our desire has been to bring him into focus not merely to understand the Hebraic roots, but to understand more fully who he is and the background um, of him and his disciples. And the section that was read to us today is part of a larger section um, in which it begins uh, with, with a rather difficult uh, discussion between Yeshua and his brothers. Now you may not be aware of the fact that that uh, his brothers were not always on board and this is such a very this section, the beginning of John chapter 7 is such a uh, uh, such a vivid explanation of where they were at the time basically saying to the Lord, Lord uh, excuse me, Yeshua they didn't say Lord um, you're wasting your time here. You're doing all these amazing miracles and all who gets to see you are these fellow hillbillies here in Galilee. You need to go where people can see you and give you the proper recognition and if you want to be a big shot then that's what you need to do. And needless to say, Yeshua did buy into that. <laughs> Uh, because he was not interested in self-promotion, self-aggrandizement. What drove Yeshua was a basic reality, and that is explained by a statement that he made to the disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, regardless of what did or didn't happen, Yeshua's compassion, what, what drove him, was a radical and utter commitment to do what it is that the Father had laid out. And by the way, I mention that because it is our hope that as time goes on, that that will become the radical commitment for each one of us. Because if we are Yeshua's disciples, if we are his followers, then we want to be like him. And that was what defined him. It needs to be what defines us. Yeshua doesn't respond to his uh, brothers uh, positively. 
he lets them go and then a day or so later he comes to Jerusalem and in the middle of this celebration of Sukkot he goes to the temple area and he teaches and preaches and so on and there were according to some estimates somewhere around 200,000 pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem for these pilgrim festivals. So you can see that when John states that Yeshua stood and said in, in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, I get your attention? You can understand that with hundreds of thousands of people, that is exactly what Yeshua had to do. Um, he had to literally yell in order to get people's attention. Uh, the seventh day, and by the way, in Israel, uh, Sukkot has, is celebrated for, for seven days. Here it is for eight, because the rabbis basically wanted to allow an additional day in case people didn't get it right. So it's the notion of building a fence around the Torah. We won't get into all of that. So the last day was called, but had two names. It was either Hoshana Raba, which means great salvation, and also Simchat Beit Hashoeva, the rejoicing of the drawing of water. And in fact, when the rabbis recorded uh, the excitement, the religious uh, ecstasy that took place there, with these words, he who has not seen the joy of water drawing has not seen joy in his entire lifetime. So what did that look like? Well, um, a group of priests came from the temple uh, to the pool of Siloam and it was, they didn't just march. It was a procession with singing and dancing um, and they they came to the pool and one of the priests took a, uh, took a golden pitcher and, and uh, filled it with water and then came back through the, temp through the water gate. And as they approached the temple gate, um, the shofar, as, as is sounded here, sounded three times and the temple choir chanted the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. I don't know if you are aware of the fact that at one time uh, there were 288 musicians in the temple. Perhaps not at this time, uh, but worship was a major endeavor for these folks. Um, so they, they sang um, 118 verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And as these words sounded, all the folks with the lulav ah, shook them three times. And then when, oops. <laughs> and then when the words Ana Adonai Hoshiana Lord save us the same thing was repeated so the high priest took the pitcher uh, with water 
and he poured it into, into a basin um, at the foot of the altar. And when he did that, he raised his hands and that's where all heaven broke loose. Uh, people were dancing, singing, uh, by one account they were doing backflips. Uh, it was a wild scene. And uh, at that point, I believe, is when Yeshua stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, why all this rigmarole of the going down to the pool of Siloam and, and all of that? Well, if you are familiar with Israel, you'll be aware of the fact that Israel is, is a very dry country. Although at this point, believe it or not, Israel is essentially um, self-sufficient with water. Um, Israel recycles 80% of its water and it gets the rest of the water through desalination. So they don't have the issues that they had back then, but uh, in biblical times, water was a huge issue because if the autumn rains didn't come, you would have drought, and if you had drought, you would have famine. And so on the following day, the day after Sukkot, uh, people pray for rain, and that's still part of the Jewish liturgy. Um, and this is something that was very much in the, in, in, on the minds of Jewish people back then. In fact, the rabbis stated that, that the rock that gave water back in the desert followed Israel throughout the wilderness years. Remember, the Lord said to Moses, Moses, take the stick and beat on it. And as he did the first time, um, water came gushing out. You can only imagine what it would have been like if you were like me, someone OCD, you would sit down and try to do the math of that. It's mind-boggling. In any event, Paul refers to the fact that Yeshua, spiritually, was that rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, so again, water. It's not just about H2O, folks. Um, it is about the, the fact, it is a symbol that when the kingdom of God would be established scripturally, then God's abundance, not just of water, but also His presence and His Spirit would be very much present. And of course, this connects connected people with Isaiah chapter 12 with, with, with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, Make known among the nations what he has done. Um, and also in Zechariah chapter 14, which is a, a scripture that predicts that when the Messianic kingdom is established, everybody will come to Jerusalem to worship God on the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. On that day, Zechariah 14, 8, and that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem 
half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and winter. And here's the biggie, folks. Not just the water. The Lord will be king over all the earth. That's, that's the biggie in, in this situation. So Yeshua stood up and said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, try to imagine what it would have been like with thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And some dude stands up and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Your inclination is to say, um, What is wrong with this guy? <laughs> I mean, Yeshua had been speaking and teaching and so on and so forth. However, um, that kind of declaration from an average normal individual, and by the way, Yeshua did not look... Uh, differently than any of the other Jews who came to Jerusalem to worship. That's a little insane, isn't it? I mean, if one of us were to do that, uh, what would our reaction be? Haul him off. Um, so why did Yeshua make that kind of proclamation? Particularly at, at the point where everybody's busting loose singing, dancing, doing backflips. I believe it was very, very calculated because that particular moment was a messianic moment. Um, and yes, you have to remember that Yeshua never stood up and said, I am the Messiah. Why? Because he did not agree with the popular conception of what Messiah would be like. You know, someone would come riding on a horse and rallied the troops and so on. For, for Yeshua, his self-definition was that he came to do the Father's will. And then the second part of the statement is, in a sense, even more outrageous. He who believes in me, out of his innermost being, out of his belly, will come forth streams of living water. Now again, think about that. I mean, I imagine most of us have read these verses once or twice or three times, but we're so used to it that we really don't consider the impact that that would have made on the people in Jerusalem on the Feast of Sukkot. Streams of living water would come, would burst forth. Okay, what was that about? Well, people knew something. Uh, the first century rabbis taught that when the kingdom of God would come, that the Spirit of God would be engaged more fully. And there are a couple of scriptures that refer to that. By the way, there's nowhere that specifically states out of his belly will come forth streams of living water. There's no place in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, that says that. But Yeshua, like first century rabbis, um, collected the basic thoughts that are given in Scripture to come up with the overall thought. There are a couple of scriptures that come to mind that I wanted to read to you. Isaiah 43, 19. 
See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen. But especially Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour water on thirsty land and streams of dry, on dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So there was some kind of basic understanding that when the Messianic Kingdom would come about, that part of the picture would be the presence and the heightened activity of the Holy Spirit. By the way, not something that is taught in rabbinic Judaism today. So they associated with rain and water with spiritual rain. And so it's not surprising then that John gives us the explanation by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to, to receive. In other words, what Yeshua is doing, he's standing there and saying, I am the answer to your prayers. Now think about the significance of that kind of statement on that day. Again, either Yeshua was who he said he was, or else he was absolutely insane, or else he was trying to sell a bill of goods to these people who would not have bought it. So what kind of an impact did that make on the people there? And by the way, let me just mention that you see the term the Jews mentioned a lot here in John. And of course, according to some of our critics, such as Rabbi Shmuley Boteach, that is proof positive of the fact that the New Testament is anti-Semitic. Mm. Not. Uh, because if you read Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, you'll see this phrase, the Jews, mentioned 50 times. So was Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther anti-Semitic? I think not. Um, it was simply a term referring to those who were from Israel. Uh, you can argue that it referred to the Judeans, the people from from uh, the southern part of, of Israel, really more to the point, it referred to Jewish people in general. Some who were positive and some who were negative or critical. Um, so, as you read John chapter 7, what you see is a whole range of people's attitudes about Yeshua. First of all, the religious leaders, we know they were the bad guys. They wanted to kill Yeshua. Okay, no doubt about that. With one exception, Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the land, uh, stood up and said, you know, we really should not condemn a person before we give them an opportunity to speak for themselves. And of course, everybody shushed them down. Then we see the Yeshua's brothers, we see the temple guards who were amazingly impressed by Yeshua's teaching. Never heard anybody like this. And then you have the masses. And the masses, you have everything from A to Z. You have some who say, he's a good man, uh, very impressive, 
then others who said he is demon possessed, i.e. it's Mishugi. Uh, others were saying he is the Messiah, or is he the Messiah? And John tells us that a bunch of people in the crowd put their faith in him. Um, Things haven't changed much, have they, folks? Opinions about Yeshua vary. They vary in the Jewish community. When I was a child, the prevailing mindset of Yeshua was that he was the God of the Gentiles. Nothing good about him. He was the source of Jewish suffering. And at this point, what's been happening the last 20 years is that there has been a shift, a reclamation of Yeshua by the Jewish community, both here and in Israel, that basically says, He is one of us. Um, if you were here Wednesday night, you, you heard Rabbi Shmuley Botev's statement that said, He was a good Jew. Don't know about the Son of God bit, but He was a good Jew. And uh, last year we had a scholar, a Jewish scholar by the name of Zev Garber, who came and also a scholar of the New Testament, and his uh, uh, teaching was that Yeshua was a good Jew and a revolutionary. And of course I had the opportunity to give him a Jewish answer and say yes and no. He was a revolutionary in that he presented a message that was different, was revolutionary. Was he a revolutionary like he wanted to get rid of the Romans? No. So the point is, like it was in the first century, we have dramatically different opinions of who Yeshua is. You know, some people consider him to be a spiritual guru. Um, and then for millions of Christians in this country, who Yeshua is is a no-brainer, Son of God, Savior, God incarnate, and so on. However, here's something I want to throw out to you folks. My observation has been that regardless of what we believe about Yeshua and what we consider, who we consider Him to be, even for the millions who claim to be followers of Yeshua, who He is makes very little difference in our practical everyday life. Think about it. Yes, you can say, He came, He died, for my sin He rose again. I embrace those facts. Yes, I believe he's coming back. However, I live my life and who he is really makes very little difference. And before you get ready to stone me, think of the reality in your life. Part of the picture is that the reality of Yeshua not just having come in the past or coming in the future, but being active today is not something that is often taught. 
I've been a believer, a follower of Yeshua for 50 years, and in, in, in all that time, I have rarely heard the presentation about that. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about the fact that Yeshua is our compassionate and merciful high priest who is currently engaged on our behalf today. Amen. Today, folks. He intercedes for us. Because of that, he is able to redeem, to bring about redemption, to clean out the yuck more fully, more completely. However, for most of us, or many of us, that's not something we're delighted with, because that means that we have to welcome him and say, you're welcome to come. You have the full run of the house. You have the privilege to come in and look at all the closets where there's yuck and spiders. You have the keys to, to, the, to the house. You have the keys to the car. We're reluctant to do that. Why? Because that means that we would be yielding control to the Lord. And after all, we are in control, right? No. Right? No. Think not. You live long enough and you get the fact that despite the foolish notion of us being in control, we are not. And that at some, at some point we come to terms with reality that the only one who is truly in control is Yeshua. Amen. So, because of that, I'm convinced, folks, that when we hear Yeshua's words, come unto me all who are thirsty, and I'll give you to drink, we're frankly not very interested because our attitude is, I'm not thirsty. I've got things under control. Or if I don't have them under control right at the moment, I know how to get them under control, how to fix them. I know who to talk to. And somehow, the Lord is gracious to get our attention bring us to a place where we're finally willing to listen, finally willing to hear what he has to say and agree with him. Amen. Agree with him. Now, this is something he said not only to the Jewish pilgrims, he also said that to the Samaritan woman at the well. John 4, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is something that Yeshua offered 2,000 years ago. It's still very much a reality that's on the table. Revelation 21, he said to me, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, 
I will give the drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is Revelation 21. Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, Come, let, whom, let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Now, as I was reflecting on this reality, what jumped out at me is the fact that God is not going to grab us by the throat, pop our mouth open, and stick the, the water of life in our mouth. You notice that in each of those statements, there is a condition. Anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What does it mean to be thirsty? And, and, and that's something I believe will take uh, a couple of millennia to, to discuss. But part of the reality for me is, I was thinking about this, is the simple question of, do I need God today? Do I need God today? If that's the case, of course, I will make a beeline towards Him and say, Lord, I am thirsty, I want to drink. Otherwise, we have absolutely no interest in seeking Him out because we frankly don't need Him. We've got things under control. Those who are thirsty, come to me and drink, says Yeshua. And there's no shame in looking at God and saying, God, I really have no clue that I'm thirsty. I'm so clueless that I don't even understand that. That for me is very reassuring folks, because lots of times I feel like I am clueless and there's no shame in admitting that because the Lord knows us inside and out we don't have no need to try and impress Him by our great spirituality and when we read scripture such as these words and our recognition is that I don't get it, then we pause and say, Lord, give me eyes, give me a new pair of glasses, take out the wax out of my ears, because I want to see you as you really see me. And on some level, on some level, we say to the Lord, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need that water. And so I, I want to simply close with this question. How thirsty are you? Are you thirsty enough to come to the Lord and take from the water he, he has to give? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God. That you know us intimately, you love us. We bless you, Lord, that we have absolutely no need to impress you, to, to wow and dazzle you, Lord, you know us. The good parts and the yuck, 
I pray, Lord God, for each one of us that these words, Lord, would large deeply and be written on our heart, be, become part of our DNA, our operating system, Lord, that we would have a clear sense of our need for you, our need for the water that you give us. We pray that you would heighten that sense of thirst and hunger for you. And Lord God, we pray that your Ruach, your Spirit, will draw us and give us the water that you have to drink. We ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah.